Hello and welcome to this episode of the Star Wars Universe podcast. Friends, I said that we're going on a semi-hiatus, and it's still somewhat true, but tonight my throat happens to be feeling a little bit better, and it's a good chance to restart something that we had put on pause for a while, the talking about Star Wars Rebels. Um, we had almost finished it, and then Obi-Wan came out, and then we had a little bit more to get through, and then a whole bunch of other things happened, we had to keep putting it on pause. And then I put it on pause, uh, all content, during the various strikes. Well, the writer strike is now over, and I've looked further and further into it, and I've now seen a number of confirmations that SAG-AFTRA has said very clearly that they are not in any way opposed to people making content about animated shows where the voice actors are not covered by the SAG-AFTRA contract. It's something I'm still kind of going back and forth on a little bit, but um, with that kind of clarification coming in a number of parts, although certainly there's some talk about unionizing those actors, which I certainly hope will happen, but I wanted to be able to kind of bring you, we, we still hadn't finished season four, a number of people had asked about it, and uh, Riki and, and hopefully at some point Sarah Hayashi will be able to join us for it, and so tonight Riki and I are going to be talking about season four, episodes 10 and 11, I'm oh, sorry, 9 and 10 Rebel Assault and Jedi Knight. And first, let me just say, Riki, welcome back. And kind of, how are you feeling about diving back into this? We are back. This is... This is actually my favorite episode of Rebels. I know that's been a running <laughs> joke uh-huh. with us. Because this show is so good. And, and there was like a very high peak where episode after episode is really good. But this mm-hmm. one, specifically Jedi Knight... I had a long think about it, and mm. it is my favorite episode of Rebels. No, no question, like no joke. This is it. This, this is the yeah. peak for me. So I'm very happy that we're back and that I get to talk about it. Yeah, I'm so glad. I really, I've been having a lot of fun talking about a lot of the books, which you've been on for some of, and Sarah's been on for a little bit of. Um, but it's this is kind of what has been our bread and butter: is talking about first the Clone Wars and then this show. Um, I distinctly remember, actually, you and I first really started talking about Star Wars because we've been talking a lot about Clone Wars, and I think I recommended this to you, and and you sent me some angry messages about how dare I get you involved in something that was so addictive, um, <laughs> and you making all these feelings, so I'm glad we're going to get to finish up this journey together. Well, and so let me kind of set the stage for what we're talking about. We're talking about season four, as I said, episodes nine and ten. Many people who know these know this show... I just have to say the words Jedi Knight and a whole bunch of things come back to you. This is, um, I think, a lot of people's favorite episode. For a lot of people, it's the episode that they watched once and then never want to watch again. Mm. And so let me kind of start by kind of filling in people who don't know uh, or just don't remember which episodes we're talking about. And so I'm getting this from the um, <clears throat> Wikipedia page, uh, but the episode summaries are for Rebel Assault. Hera and her assault team land at Lothal and begin to battle their way past the Imperial blockade, while the ghost crew on the ground sabotage the anti-aircraft batteries to allow an unhindered attack on the Thai factory at Lothal's capital. However, with Thrawn coordinating the Imperial defenses, the rebel attack force is annihilated, with only a few survivors, Hera, Chopper, and pilot Mart Mart Matten, managing to reach the surface and regroup safely. As Hera's group attempts to slip out of the city under constant pursuit by Rook, Kanan returns to the capital to look for her, only to be stopped by the Lo- Lothwolf, and he asks what it, what it should he, he asks the Lothwolf what he should do. Hera opens an escape route, but is captured by Rook before she can use it. 
Martin Chopper then picked up by Kanan and returned and brought to the Rebels' hideout as the Lothwolf watches. And then that goes into episode 10, but it's such an arc that we're talking about the two of them together. While Hera is being tortured by Governor Price, Ezra, Kanan, and Sabine prepare to rescue her. With Admiral Thrawn absent on Coruscant, they infiltrate the Lotharian Imperial Command Center using gliders they built to look like Lothbats. And as Ezra and Sabine secure a gunship as an escape craft, Kanan covers Hera's Calicori. Kanan recovers Hera's Calicori, an important fairly heirloom that was taken by Thrawn earlier in the series, and frees Hera before she, under the effects of a truth serum, can reveal the location of the rebel base. As they attempt to escape on one of the gliders, Kanan instructs Hera to land them inside Lothal City's fuel depot. Just as Ezra and Sabine pick them up, Price orders her troops to open fire on the fuel tanks, causing an explosion. Caught on top of the tank, and here's the real hard bit, caught on top of the tank, Kanan uses the force to control the explosion and push Hera and his friends away from the blast at the cost of his own life. Now, this doesn't mention, I think, two very important parts of the story that for me, are really defining both on like the, the micro level of this story, but also honestly inform everything I think about Jedi and love and attachment and all of that. First of all, because this is the episode in which Kanan and Hera really confirm their, their romantic love for each other. It's been very heavily implied throughout the episodes beforehand, but they, they clearly kiss in this episode. They both say, I love you to each other. And, and, and there's a lot of that kind of thing that happens. And secondly, in a moment that I'd actually forgotten, but when I saw really hit me so hard, Kanan not, not only acknowledges that, but says to Ezra, and in this way kind of addressing what everyone thinks is the, pro- the danger of this kind of thing, Ezra, because I, he says, Ezra, because I am so attached to Hera personally, you need to command the mission. I can't be the one in command because I have too many personal feelings. He wants the mission to happen, and he's going to take part in it, but he want, he recognizes his own attachment and asks Ezra to lead it. So just two other important things that the summaries didn't didn't uh, leave out. So, yeah, what, what makes these your favorite? I mean, just talking about it, that final, what, like, minute of, mm-hmm. of the episode Jedi Knight... The death of Kanan is one of the most beautiful moments in all of Star Wars. It's tragic. His death is mm-hmm. tragic, but his sacrifice, like, it's right up there with Darth Vader, right? Like, saving Luke in Return of the Jedi. And I, I think that that's a very strong connection that they share is Jedi in the moment when they are needed are willing to do what needs to be done and, and up to and including sacrificing their own life for the people they love. And that's such a beautiful sentiment, like from a storytelling standpoint. And Mm -hmm. in this episode, like it is the writing, I think it's perfect for it. The acting is perfect. And the, the animation, like we are describing it to you in words the ending of this episode ends in a blinding flash of the explosion as as the the shuttle escapes and we know that Kanan is dead and it fades to white and then the Star Wars Rebels logo which is usually how the episode ends with like a little bit of musical fanfare uh it's the the logo is usually like orange 
And this time it's like white. It's just like pale white. And there's, I think, ash. There's just like ash, like floating down from the explosion, basically, like as we see the logo. And then the credits, the end credits play with no music. Where it usually, yeah, it's just all of the choices that they made are stunning and amazing. And I love it. Um, we didn't mention that Kanan's eyesight. Kanan has been blind since the end of season yeah. two. In that final moment, we see his eyes in a close-up and his eyesight returns. So that the last thing he sees is the woman he loves and the family that he's saving. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it really was. And <clears throat> that last little moment, uh, I had forgotten it, but I was thinking of, uh, I, until I rewatched it last night, but I was thinking about it the whole time you're talking about the animation. It's just that one shot of like kind of the, 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 the dome that like his eyes just look kind of like the color is dull and, and they clear and you can see his eyes clearly. I think mm-hmm. as you said, it's to imply that he can see again for that one last moment. It is just so beautifully done. I will say, and here I'm not trying to rain on anyone's parade or anything like that. I, it is still one of my favorite episodes. <clears throat> Watching it again, I was a little frustrated just in that, and I'm not going to blame this for the trope because it's not the worst example and it's not the first example or the last example, but I had forgotten how much we get of the two of them really confirming and announcing their love for each other. And the fact that so often now when I watch something and I see two characters finally have a really big emotional moment that they didn't get to have until now, especially if it's care or if it's a character who like, we didn't really know that much about, but even if it is very well-known characters like this, there's a part of my brain that goes, Oh, one of them's going to die because that is the trope by now. And there's a part of me that wishes that we got more of this between him and Hera over the last couple of episodes, because I think watching it again, it, it just feels a little bit manipulative in ways that I don't love. Um, but again, it, that is such an established trope that I think if it's going to use this trope, this is a far better and less sort of uh, hit you over the head with it version of it than I've seen a lot of others do. So it's it just my – I still think it's still in my top ten episodes of the show. But it's my one little kind of complaint watching it again is I wish that we – it didn't have to be – we finally get the romantic moment that we've been building to for so long, and it has to be right before they die. So I had a feeling that that word would come up, manipulative, mm. because I I share that sentiment. I think that the way that the romance has been teased to us throughout this season, like they've almost kissed twice only to be interrupted, and then... To have the kiss happen, to have the verbal confirmation of love happen, and then just immediately, like in the next minute, he dies, is manipulative. It's manipulative storytelling. Mm-hmm. But I have a different opinion. I'm here for it. Like, mm-hmm. I think that, that that is, to me, that's peak storytelling and, and peak manipulation of emotions that I want good storytelling to do. And when I say good, I compare this to the kiss at the end of Rise of Skywalker, because that was just kind of nonsense. Like, I don't feel yeah. that that was earned between those characters. Whereas this kiss, this emotional manipulation of the audience, I think is absolutely earned. And it yeah. it's tragic, but it's beautiful for these characters. Um, another one is um, that I think of is Edge of Tomorrow, 
right? Like mm-hmm. the Tom Cruise Groundhog Day action movie. Like mm-hmm. he and uh, Emily Blunt's character kiss in, in, mm-hmm. just before the climactic battle. And I don't think that that was earned from her perspective yeah. because she's repeating the same day. Like she doesn't know him from his perspective. Yeah, like absolutely. Like he's fallen in love with her. But it's like she's only known you for a day. So yeah. I, I, I like not every manipulative kiss is the same, in my opinion. Like it, it depends fair. on the storytelling that has led up to that point. Yeah. No, I totally get that. Like in fact, I think it was completely earned. I just wish that it wasn't in the same episode that he dies. Yeah. Um, I, I will also say, and this is a bit of a spoiler for what comes later, but this is something that has been so spoiled across Star Wars media that I feel okay saying it. But if you really have no idea what's going to happen next with these characters, skip ahead a minute or two. It's portrayed in some way as though this is their first kiss or their second kiss. Like you said, it's been like, like, like on some level, it's like they're finally getting to connect this way. But we've had some indications before that they were already connected this way. And we later find out that she's pregnant. And so clearly, <laughs> I, this I is probably, you know, I mean, unless there's some cloning thing that happened or they just had, I mean, there well, are people. Well, you see, who- there's, there's the scene where they cut away to what Ezra and Sabine are doing. And then, no, I, I it's clear but- that they have been romantically involved prior to this point in this season. And I, I have certainly been in situations where we became lovers long before we fell in love. And, you know, the sexual side was there before the romantic side. So, like, I mean, anything's possible here. And and I think it was meant to be a – not a confession of a new thing, but just a, a saying of what they hadn't really been willing to say to each other before. Um, but, yeah, putting aside my little gripes there, it is just a really beautiful thing. What do you think the Lothwolf told him? Because we never learn what the Lothwolf told him. And I think oh. it's pretty strongly implied kind of what – you know, but what – because the, both the Loth cats and now the Loth wolves have really been kind of creatures of prophecy and very much of the Force. What do you think it is that they told him? Well, I, I mean, it literally just says Doom, his name, Caleb right. Doom. I, my belief is that he was given or he was shown a Force vision of mm. his future, and he saw that. He would be successful in rescuing Hera, but that he would die during the rescue. And, and because everything that that Kanan does after that point is with like this calm understanding and, and like the words he uses make mm-hmm. it to me like it seems clear to me that he knows he's going to die after that yeah. point. So I believe that's what happened, and he's at peace with it, and 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 that adds to the beauty of the situation. Like he knows he's gonna die, and he's not afraid. And and that's been a thing with his character is like fear. He's always been afraid of things, right? Afraid of the Grand Inquisitor, Darth Vader. Afraid of taking Ezra on as his apprentice because he wasn't sure he could do it. And in his final moment, he is not afraid of the ultimate thing that. Most humans are afraid of death. He's not afraid of death and he accepts it and he willingly walks towards it because he understands also that it means saving the woman he loves. So. And 
it's so beautifully done, and I think you're right. It really is kind of the pinnacle of his journey, especially in there. Even the episode name means so much because, as as we've seen and we've talked about in earlier episodes and seasons, he left as a Padawan. He, no one ever made him a Jedi Knight. He did become a Jedi Knight in this kind of like thing inside the ancient Jedi Temple. Yes, but even there, there was some level of like, okay, you know, how real is that? What is that? And to me, this is the ultimate. Like he. The episode is spelled N-I-G-H-T because I think it's, you know, this very dark event that happens for the Jedi. But also I think it's very much supposed to be a recognition of him as a Jedi Knight, Mm K-N-I-G-H-T. I I also think there's kind of a cool thing of, you know, what the the word that the wolf is saying is doom. And his last name is spelled D-U-M-E. So the wolf is saying that. But obviously, that also sounds a lot like the word D-O-O-M, doom, as in like, you know, your end, your 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 bad future. Yeah. And so I think that's another thing. It's like he's the, the wolf is kind of saying it's got some indication of like, I hate time travel stories and I hate sort of vision of the future stories because I think there's always a logical like, why couldn't they just change it? But I do like the idea of that in some ways he's being warned, he's being told like, this is going to happen, as you said, like, you know, none of the details, but like, make your peace with this. Yeah. And, and this kind of goes back to a previous episode where we talked about um, Jedi prophecies, right? Mm-hmm. Regarding the Qui-Gon Jinn, the Master and Apprentice novel by Claudia Gray. Yep. It, to my recollection, every time a Jedi has a vision of the future, it is unchangeable. Like it is like predetermined, right? Like Anakin has a vision of Padme dying and he, he does everything in his power to stop it, including going to the dark side. And he can't, he can't stop it. And in fact, like there's an argument that says that him trying to stop it and going to the dark, dark side is what leads to her death. Yeah. Right. So paralleling that with if we believe Kanan received a vision like there's there's something very noble about him understanding and I think he uses that word I think he says I understand what I must do yeah and just like the the acceptance of it is just adds to the nobility of his sacrifice and the way that he interacts with Ezra in this episode leading up to it again like if you assume that he has like this acceptance that he's going to die everything that he says to Ezra like takes on this new kind of more significance of the master and apprentice relationship of him saying basically like it's your time now at at, at one point um, Ezra says something about listening and, and he tells him he praises him and says Ezra you were always good at listening or maybe hearing it served you well here, and it will serve you well again in the future. And that's the final thing he says to Ezra, like the final lesson he gives him. And it's such a poignant moment. Like, th- this episode is great. And the first yeah. time you watch it, if you don't know what's going to happen, like it's shocking, and it's it's beautiful in that shock. But for me, like the true beauty is on the rewatch when you, the audience, knows what's going to happen. So much stuff takes on more significance, in my opinion, and becomes even more poignant and beautiful. And I think 
I hope like that that is a credit to the writers that they wrote it in that way that you could rewatch it and it's just like a very different experience. Yeah, no, I get that, and I and I love that it was like that for you. As I said, for me, it was more of a negative, but I but I totally think that's possible, and I, know, I certainly know people who this is one of their favorite episodes to rewatch for that exact reason. What do you? So obviously, this question of are Jedi allowed to have attachment and what does that mean and what is the danger and, you know, how strict is that rule? This is a theme we keep coming back to. It was a key theme for Anakin, obviously. It's all about Obi-Wan and Satine and, and other characters. This final moment that that a recognition that Kanan is at his most Jedi when acting in part out of his love for Hera and and speaking openly about it and and him also saying to Ezra like because of that attachment you have to be in charge what do you think all of this kind of says about these questions of attachment that we keep coming back to with the Jedi it says that Dave Filoni hates the Jedi order as <laughs> <laughs> like an institution i i think it it everything Dave Filoni touches in Star Wars mm-hmm. contributes to this deconstruction and maybe like demolishment of the jedi order like literally like it's kind of a trope now like every day floating show has to have an order 66 scene because he yeah. just loves killing the jedi right <laughs> that's and that, that that's kind of become a trope in the fan community but i do really think like as a creator he is like hammering home that the jedi order was wrong and yeah. they if not responsible, their dogma led to the fall of Anakin Skywalker. Mm-hmm. I think that's really true. I think that had like a twist to it, though, because I think in this especially, to me, part of what he's saying is that the Jedi are somewhat justified in their concern about attachment, but that they go too far, that they're too yeah, doctrinaire. Yeah. Because I think Caleb, to me, is kind of the perfect idea of, uh, and I know like I talk about a lot, like and I know I talk about this a lot with um neighborhood master Allen who's a, a a martial artist and a lightsaber maker and he was on this podcast earlier he and I have gone back and forth about this a lot but it's something that he will sometimes say is that you know like their their non-attachment does not mean cut off from the whole world it doesn't have to mean celibacy it doesn't have to mean no relationships with other people it means relationships that don't get to the point of attachment and like you know ego and all the things that can tie into that and i think i don't draw the lines quite where he does but i do think Kanan is that perfect example of where you know that like when obi-wan you know when when whoever it is who makes anakin feel that he has to hide what he has with padme or you know that anakin feel like he would have to give up the jedi entirely to be with sabine uh satine i'm sorry um, like, yeah, that, that the Jedi are wrong there. And I think it, it's funny because I, I love the High Republic books and I think they're doing such a good job exploring so many things. Hmm. I feel like part of the High Republic's mission was, can we point out that Filoni isn't talking about the Jedi as they've always been, but that cause so much of what those books is about is a time when there were the rules about non-attachment, but they were not as like legalistic as they are by the time of Yoda and Obi-Wan and all the rest, that they are that there is a lot more open like there's one character who literally says like he can have casual sex, but he can't fall in love. And another character who says like, yeah, I can love people. I just can't 
love them to the point that it que- that it, it it makes me question my judgment about the things I need to do. And for me, like when 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 Kanan says like Ezra, you need to be the one to make these decisions. It's such because it's he doesn't say I can't be in this mission, and he says like the mission's going to be to rescue Hera, and if you're not going to do that, then I'm going to do it. But by handing it over, it, it to me it's a beautiful recognition of him saying. I am somewhat attached, and that can be a danger, and so I'm purposely taking steps to avoid that being a danger. Yeah, and I think it also ties into what I was saying earlier, is that he is passing the torch. Yeah. And in that moment, like, Ezra doesn't even realize it. Like, your logic, like, probably makes sense to Ezra, right? And he's mm-hmm. like, okay, yeah, like, you're... You're too close to Hera. I'll handle that. Yeah. But from Kanan's perspective, he's literally saying, like, this is my last mission. Like, from this point forward, like, you have to be the Jedi on this I team. I thought he had that conversation before he meets the Lothwolf. No, because the, the, Loth, the Lothwolf happens on the, the freeway when he's mm-hmm. on the speeder going back to rescue Hera. Yeah, and then okay, he ends right. up he ends right. up rescuing Mart. Yeah, and that's the end of the first episode, which we should talk about more. Yeah, <laughs> um, I, I think it's still a very good episode, and there's some really interesting things going on there with some of the Definitely. secondary characters. But Definitely. going back to your kind of original question about this, what is what is going on in this episode with Kanan? I think mm-hmm. they're telling us, especially with the title as well, Jedi Knight, that this. This Kanan is the idealized form of a Jedi Knight. Yeah, very much so. Very much so. That this is the example that other Jedi should aspire to, and if you could somehow like rebuild an order with you know these rules in place, like it would be a better Jedi order. Yeah. No, I think that's very true, and it. This is sort of my own leap, but I think it's a very fair one. You know, it's often said that part of why the duels of the fa- the duel of the fates was so important is because, you know, Qui Gon was really one of the only people who could have raised Anakin in a way that would have saved him from falling. I- again, none of this is to excuse Anakin's choices, but that, as you said, like the 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 situation of of how he was raised and being told to, you know, just you know repress all of his feelings and and feeling like he has to talk to them in secret and all that, it is a contributing factor. They're of the wrong generation, but I think Kanan's another person. Like I think if, if Anakin had been Kanan's Padawan, it would have gone a lot better. And I, I love Obi Wan. I think Obi Wan did the absolute best he could. But I think I think the understanding that Kanan has of attachments, as he's shown here, it it might have been a, a much healthier way for for Anakin to be able to approach it all. Yeah, Obi Wan, Obi Wan specifically in Attack of the Clones, which is like their primary mentorship Mm -hmm. at least like in the movies obviously in the clone wars tv show we get more but in that movie obi-wan is a jerk he's he's actually like very mean to anakin and i kind of don't that's another one of the reasons i don't like that movie i like their relationship in the clone wars a lot better Mm -hmm. because it fits more with who i believe obi-wan should have been i guess or or was Mm mm-hmm it, it, this is ground we've tread on before, but it, it's why I feel like the Satine, re- the Satine relationship rescues Obi Wan for me in a lot of ways because mm, it, yeah. it, 
it makes me better understand because I, I have to believe Obi-Wan knew what was going on between Anakin and, and Padme. And I feel like his heartbreak over Satine and his constantly want is part of why he can't bring himself to, you know, to make them stop, but he also can't acknowledge it and like create space for it. Um, Anyway, that, that's a whole other can of worms, but I think it's what makes this episode so great is it it kind of touches on these larger questions that are throughout all of Star Wars. Excuse me, throughout all of Star Wars. So let's shift gears a bit. And this is going to kind of talk about the, the first episode as well, but also it, it, I'm going to bring up something from the second episode. Once they realize Hera is captured, they pretty much abandon their original mission of trying to deal with the factory that's going to make these TIE defenders and just focusing on, on rescuing her as well as Mart and Chopper. And then in the course of that, because, you know, Governor Price is not the best at long-term planning and has all the problems she has, um, she winds up destroying the fuel and in so doing kind of performs their mission for them. Um which I think is kind of a funny irony, but it kind of goes back to the start. Let's talk about like your thoughts on like what their mission was and then how it shifts into a rescue mission. So the, in the first episode, they are assaulting Lothal, the rebels, the rebels are assaulting Lothal with 24 starfighters. A mix of X-Wings and Y-Wings. I don't know if it was 12 and 12, but that, that's what they say in the episode. And then they have the ground the ground team doing the demolitions of the anti-aircraft guns. The Grand Admiral Thrawn has a fleet of like a half dozen Star Destroyers and mm. probably like twice as many support ships and obviously like TIE fighters on all of those ships. I don't understand this mission from a tactical standpoint. Like, who approved this? Why have you only brought 24 starfighters? When we know that the rebels, at this point, do have a, a sizable fleet. And when Hera's captured, right. like, that's one of the things Governor Price asks is, where's the rebel fleet? Because I, I think right. at this point, there is no there is no base. Well, there's, there's Yavin, but... Yeah. I don't think they know that there's a base because they chased him off of Adelon at the end of season three. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, yeah, I, I feel like this mission was destined to fail just yeah. from a like tactical number standpoint. And it's really weird to me. Like, this is kind of like the mythology of Grand Admiral Thrawn <laughs> is that he's never, he's never lost a fight. Well, when you got, you know, six star destroyers and like 20 other capital ships against 24 starfighters like who's gonna lose that fight <laughs> yeah uh D- danielle and i uh danielle written in the star wars who's been a, uh, a great creator who's also been a host on this podcast a number of times she and i just finished going through the thrawn trilogy the first one that includes oh. like um a lot of great stuff including like getting to see thrawn's perspective after the end of season three and how the emperor and, and that meeting on Coruscant that he is gone, that he leaves for is in that book as well. Um, and it's funny though, because one thing we talked about how is it does feel like the Thrawn of the books is a much better admiral than the Thrawn of the rebels. Um, and that's in part because Thrawn is the point of view character. And so he gets to be the biggest Gary Sue that's ever Gary Sue to Gary Sue. I mean, I love the character, but he's, Timothy Zahn has absolutely fallen in love with his own character, and he writes him as though he can do no wrong. But of course, in Rebels, our heroes have to win. 
And so, yeah, the, the skill level doesn't yeah. always line up. Well, the the battle, like, I think Rogue One showed us that, like, there's a bunch of ships that are all kind of in the same area, but they're all run by different people, and they're not all agreed yet that they should all go into combat together. Um, so I kind of, I get why there were so few ships, but yeah, the, there's a lot, and, and sort of the way that they break through does not make much tactical, none of it makes much tactical sense. The The complicated puzzle that the creators of this show had to walk was that the rebels have to win like in certain ways, but Thrawn can't lose because he's Thrawn. And like the end of season three had this, right? Like the rebels win by escaping from Adelon. So like Thrawn wins, but like from our perspective, like our protagonists have escaped. So the rebels have won, right? Like it's a very like kind of trying to have it both ways type of thing. And like Mm -hmm. notably like Thrawn defeats the rebels tactically and he's basically like won the battle and has them close to surrender. And it was the Bendu. So like the fact that this incredible force being existed on this planet is what's ultimately thwarts Thrawn. And, and so like that also adds to that mythology of Thrawn. Like he, he, he doesn't lose to rebels. He can only lose to like this incredible force being the Bendu. So like tactically he did not lose. He was not beaten. Yeah. And and they're kind of, they're kind of locked into a, a box in a little way because, um, you know, not only does are the heroes have to win, but they can't win too big because the very first thing that Star Wars ever told us in 1977 is that the rebels have just won their first victory against the against the Empire. Mm. Like that's literally like the second line in that opening crawl. So also like they can win, but they can't win. Same, <laughs> same like, you know, because the Battle of Scarif has to be their first major victory. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's it's. Rebels does a very, very good job of being kind of a, like, fit it into the middle of a time period where you have stuff before and stuff after. But it it does wrestle with some of that. And then, yeah, Thrawn leaves. Like, Thrawn is called away to Coruscant by Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, like, in between the episodes or, like, after the initial battle, but before Mm -hmm. the the Hera rescue happens. So, again, like... It, as you mentioned, it's Governor Price who who makes the tactical fumble that leads right. to the fuel depot being destroyed and shutting down the Tie Defender program. So again, it wasn't Thrawn that failed. In fact, he wasn't even there. Like if mm. Thrawn had been there, I'm sure he would have stopped all this. Like that's yep. kind of the conceit going on. And and so like that scene, like ooh, I got I got chills still again when Grand Moff Tarkin. He name drops Orson Krennic, and then he name drops Operation Stardust, and I'm just like, ah, Rogue One, yeah. <laughs> it, it exists, and it was just, it was, it was a fun. I don't even know if it's an Easter egg, a connection, yeah, between all of the tissue of Star Wars. No, it really is, and it's again not to push those episodes, but. It's why I love that Thrawn trilogy so much because they really like certainly when Thrawn goes goes to the Emperor does not think he won a, a victory on Esalon and Vader absolutely does not think he does. Um, even to the point of like that's when they start to wonder if he's a traitor or not. So yeah, it's just great development. Oh, interesting. Character. I didn't know that. 
So oh, they, yeah. they think because the Rebels escaped that it, it's a failure. Yeah, very much so. And and Thrawn himself feels it's a failure. Thrawn mm-hmm. is very haunted by it and feeling like he has to fix it. And it's it's just it's the Thrawn Alliances in particular is a f- fantastic book because Thrawn had spent time with Anakin, and then Thrawn later spends time with Vader, and yeah, it's revealed yeah. that Thrawn like. But I think, and this is kind of a larger thing we can talk about because this is these are big Thrawn episodes as well. One thing Danielle and I talked about a lot when reading those books is Thrawn is very, very intentionally a Sherlock Holmes figure, uh, to the point where <laughs> Timothy Zahn has said yes. that he like would sit down and read Sherlock yes, Holmes books is. before writing him, and some of the adaptations of Sherlock Holmes to screen have captured that, but they do it by making Sherlock Holmes or whatever the version of him is the main character and giving him a lot of exposition where he can say this, 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 this. And I feel like the show is where he is an antagonist, but he's one of a couple of antagonists and he's not a main character. There just really isn't time to do that. And I, I think that's part of why, like, I, I like Thrawn in Rebels, and he's menacing, and he's wonderful, but I don't think that, for those who kind of think he's kind of, like, underpowered compared to the Thrawn of the books, I think that's because, the A, he's the focus of the books, and he's not in this, but also because it's very hard to convey all that on screen. And I think that they, I like the character of Thrawn in Rebels, I think he's not the same character as he is in the books. Yeah, I... I have not read all of the Thrawn novels. Like, mm-hmm. I've read pretty much all of the old Legends ones with Thrawn, and then, like, maybe right. one or two of the newer ones, and, and didn't really like it because of the thing you mentioned about, you know, Timothy mm-hmm. Zahn kind of fan-fictioning his own character. And, mm-hmm. and, and so, from that perspective, I agree that Grand Admiral Thrawn on, on Rebels is underpowered. Because I, yeah. I think I, what I would phrase it as like the Thrawn in the novels is overpowered. And it's yeah. to the point of kind of incredulity that he can predict all the things that he does by looking yeah. at art. I think there's that. I think there's also the one aspect of show and tell in that in the books you get from his perspective. So you get to see all the times he does right. And so when he doesn't do something right, it, it fits into a larger pattern. Mm. In Rebels, we're just told how brilliant he is. But most of the times we see him, he loses. Uh, and so I think it, 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 like, he's still very menacing, but you're right. Like, the, the, the fact that they outsmart him in this, or that he, they like, still manage to get away, uh, and that he manages to leave Governor Price in charge at yeah. a pivotal moment, it, it's all just like, yeah. I, I mean, I think the reason he loses, like they pre- they always present it as the reason he loses is the incompetence of other Imperials. Like here, it's Price. Right. Um, in in the season finale, zero hour, it was Constantine, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, pl- and then plus the Bendu. So it's either the incompetence of other Imperials or just like a power that is completely beyond him. Yeah, I will say one thing that I appreciate is that what they do with the Calicori, because it was not of a huge deal, but it was introduced in, as we said, a much earlier episode where Hera sneaks into her own, her family home, the Sindula home, which is being used as Imperial headquarters um, on her home planet. 
And and the the Kalakori is part of how Thrawn realizes who she is. But he he's obviously upset at his subordinate who doesn't recognize the importance of the Kalakori. And he he speaks to Hera in a way that he what he's saying is, you're my enemy, but I respect you and I respect your art and your traditions. And I'm genuinely curious and like respectful of this Kalakori that is yours. And the way he says it, I think you could easily read it as A, he's being sincere, or B, he's, you know, evil villain monologuing and being like mocking of, you know, oh, but of course we're gonna we're in control and you know, you came back for this, you you know, primitive person, etc. And so the fact that here again he kind of it's like he recognizes that um uh she wants it and and he's using it against her, but but there is still that line of respect for it. Um, it doesn't make him any less villainous, but I think it makes him an interesting character in a way that we don't often see with, with villains like that. I, you use the word respectful and I don't Mm -hmm. know if that's the right word. I think he Mm -hmm. is appreciative of art, Mm -hmm. but to me, Thrawn has big colonizer energy and and like he's the kind of person who steals other people's arts and puts it on a ship and like I appreciate it. I understand this culture and like yeah. talks high and mighty but you've stolen their art you know like the, mm-hmm. the this belongs in a museum like in its home country like that's yeah. and Thrawn doesn't get that like it it's all about him and his ego with respect I, I, to the art I think you're very correct there and I think respectful is probably the wrong word but what I'm trying to get at is it is like, I'm going to put two point of views out, and they're both colonizer, and they're both horrible, but I think there's a difference between them that's interesting, one of which is these indigenous people are primitive, and their art is primitive and be and beneath our notice. And the other is, oh, this is a new culture. I'm fascinated by it. I'm fascinated by its art. I am a colonizer, and so I'm going to take that art back, but I'm going to have a – I'm genuinely interested in asking this person – to tell me about their understanding of the art because I will learn more about it and while also colonizing them and stealing their art and taking it back. And, and that's kind of the difference I meant because it feels like he is – like again, because it, it – this is kind of the nuance I think it's always hard to talk about it because I don't for a minute want to sound like I'm defending him or defending colonizing or saying that like this makes colonizing better. But it does feel like there's a genuine like – a curiosity and a a, a sort of a, a desire to better understand it in a way that the others are just like, oh, it's primitive. Who cares? Let's look down on it. Yeah, I, th- I think that's correct. Like the other imperial officer in that episode is like very demeaning and looks yeah. looks down upon um, the 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 native population on Ryloth. I I'm not sure is is where mm. I'm going to end up. Um, in terms of Thrawn and respect for cultures, because I don't, I just don't think we've heard enough or gotten enough from Thrawn mm-hmm. himself on that, because he's such a curious character in terms of his place in Star Wars and specifically his place in the Empire, which has yeah. traditionally been at mm-hmm. least like portrayed as human supremacist, right? Like everyone mm-hmm. in the Empire is human except for Thrawn and I guess Masa Meda. So like yeah. there's this, they, and they, but they never really talk about it openly. 
at least like in canon now. I think in Legends, yeah. they did talk about it more that it was a human supremacist organization and specifically like talked about why Thrawn was so extraordinary and that he yeah. rose to the rank of Grand Admiral in such a place. Um, I will w- say that the, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, go ahead. Like I, I'm because you've read the newer novels. Like, mm-hmm. is that acknowledged more? It definitely is. It, it's specifically acknowledged, and they even give a reason for it. And the reason, like like any kind of racism or supremacy, it does not excuse it. It does not make it okay. But I feel like it helps me better, like find it more believable than it's, because again, like I don't. The muahaha mustache twirling villainy is just rarely there, and a lot of times. You know, racist systems are built for there. There, there are sparking events, or there's reasons that are doesn't justify it in the slightest, but help to better understand it. And what they posit in the book is that, um, and that this is again something that the emperor kind of is manipulative and 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 pushing, but is that because the separatist races were primarily non-human. That that's a big part of sort of why the the ending of the Republic and then into the Empire holds on to that. And that there's a real distrust of most of the alien races. Whereas, hmm. Because since – which is funny because like – and this also is kind of a – you and I talked about this before about how during the Clone Wars, like if they wanted to show – separatists you you could agree with like the you know the like like lux and like the 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 senator on the republic they were often human if you wanted to see separatists we could feel comfortable killing they were very alien so it's kind of oceans especially yeah exactly but but i i I did think it was interesting the way that this book sort of took that it's like okay well maybe we can spin that into here's part of where the racism i mean racism doesn't have an origin racism often it comes out of supremacy like again i'm not justifying it in any way but that that's kind of the veneer under which it spreads is the the alien races were the separatists and the humans for the most part other than their literal leader uh were, were not separatists and so they're more loyal to the empire and stuff like that mm-hmm. yeah makes but, sense no but but I, I i going back to your original point i do agree and i think it's entirely possible that because the books deal so much more with his respective art and and from there he really has a like a warrior to warrior respect <clears throat> that I think he does have with um, Hera to some extent, but it's much more in the books. And so I'm probably projecting it somewhat into that scene. Hmm. Um, what else? What else about the kind of the, the relationships between the characters or, or what happens outside of the, the Canaan story uh, is, is notable for you about these episodes? Well, I, I want to keep talking about Thrawn on a kind mm-hmm. of different angle, because one thing that struck me on this latest rewatch is that he just didn't care about Volt Scaris, who was the mm. the pilot of the Tie Defender, right? Like Scaris disobeys Thrawn's orders and continues to chase Hera as she is like on kind of a collision course towards his flagship, mm. and his uh, I think like he he orders his officer to open fire on on basically both of them because they're in the same right. field of vision. And the officer kind of hesitates. He's like, but, but, you know, Commander Scaris. And he's like, he, you know, Thrawn says something and kind of dismisses him and says, I told you to open fire, right? Kind of mirroring what Governor Price does at the end of the next episode. Mm-hmm. And it was, <clears throat> I, I mean, it's hard to say it's out of character because, like, this is part of what's creating Thrawn's character. But it felt out of character to my understanding of Thrawn 
to to disregard the life of a subordinate. I always felt like he had more respect for his for for their lives. So it it was weird to me. Yeah, it definitely rubbed me the wrong way. I think, and and to me again, I think it's it's like when you say it's out of character. The next question is which character, and because I think it is in character for the rebels throng. It is out of character for the novels throng. And that's one thing when those are just the heir to the empire novels, but the other novels are also canon. Um, it, well, I, I'll say it's both in character and out of character, because I think to me, there, there's two elements of, of Thrawn's character that come into play here. One of which is he, yeah, he, he thinks uh, building loyalty among your subordinates is incredibly important. And he's often critical of kind of Vader's approach of, you know, if you do bad, I'm going to kill you. Right. And and there's a and there's a great scene in which like people who normally work for Vader are now like working for him and are deeply afraid. He's like, no, I we don't do that here. I'm not gonna kill you. Just, you know, you're learning. I want you to learn and do better. So that speaks to he wouldn't do this. On the other hand, he is very presented as a very a, a great perspective to me of amoral, not immoral. Like I don't believe for a second that he'd be like, Scaris disobeyed me, so he's wrong and I want to kill him now out of vengeance. No, definitely him. not. Yeah, I think it's more just, I have assets and I need to use my assets in the best possible way to win the war. And sometimes that means moving one ship into position where it's going to be really badly mauled and maybe even destroyed so that all my other ships can come around from another direction and win the overall fight. And, and you know, they kind of like it's sacrificing your pawn to move your bishop. And the fact that it's a human life or, or any sentient life doesn't matter to him much. And that is – that level of emotional detachment is especially about someone who like – you know, I could see him being like, I don't want to lose a valuable pilot. This pilot disobeyed orders. That is not a valuable asset to me. That's actually a dangerous asset. I'm comfortable sacrificing it. Yeah. Okay. Like that level of military thinking, I think, would very much be in character for Thrawn, but but also just the the cal- it does feel like the writers are trying to be like, no, no, he is callous, he is evil, he is a villain. Um, that was like, eh, it doesn't really make sense, but okay. No, you're right. I I think I think that that hit me as correct. Is that mm-hmm. as soon as you disobey Thrawn's orders. He could he he doesn't care about you anymore. Basically, like right. if you wanted to survive this battle, you should have followed my orders. Is kind of like the the right. attitude he has in that moment. Yeah, yeah, and and I think like it looks a lot like what Vader would do, but whereas Vader would be like, "You have done bad. I have to punish you." For Thrawn, it's you have shown you are not a valuable asset yeah. that is worthy of protection. It is still the correct tactical move to open fire on Hera's X-Wing. So I'm going to do right. it, and if you get hit, well, you disobeyed my orders, so that's your fault. Right. Okay. Yeah, exactly. I, I, think I, can rec- I, I think I can reconcile that. Yeah. Now, I think an interesting question would be, and if I recall, I don't think later episodes really let them address this, but I think there's a very interesting question of which is more valuable – the fuel for the TIE Defender program or the chance to kill one of the last Jedi left in the galaxy who has been one of the primary, like, thorns in their side. Like, I don't... I think Price is an idiot, but I think if... I I could see a world in which Thrawn said, 
the fuel was a necessary sacrifice to destroy one of the biggest sort of assets that the enemy had against us. Mm, I don't but know. But he also loves the TIE Defender program so yeah. much that I'm just not sure. There's two things. Like, at this point, it's unclear how much respect Thrawn has for Jedi and their, mm-hmm. their powers. I think after this series, he certainly has a lot more respect, perhaps even fear of mm-hmm. Jedi. And then, given that he was called away to basically justify the TIE Defender program to the Emperor, I think it's probably more frustrating to him. Because in the novel, like, he does he win the argument? But then, like, it's it's halted anyway because of Price's error? Um... It's 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 a very confusing thing, and I, I really recommend reading the novel. But I'd say that basically, like, because one of the things that the novel sets up, and and they do hint at it in this as well, is that yeah, the, it's a question of kind of like, do you fund the Tie Defender program or do you fund the the Death Star? And yeah, um, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't really want to say anything because it is a crucial plot point. But clearly, the Death Star program goes forward, so you can kind of draw your conclusions from that. But he. He's still absent, so he's still presumably on Coruscant at the end of this, and I think for mm. another couple of episodes even. So I think maybe it fits in that he was like on the verge of winning his argument, and then they get news that the fuel depot's been destroyed, and it's like, oh, well, mm. then we don't have to fund you anymore because you, you know, until you repair the fuel depot or whatever, resupply, like, you don't need, you don't need these funds. That is not brought up in the novels that I've read. That I've read, really. Um, huh. But, but all right, Timothy yeah, Zahn I, got a new novel for you. No, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that is interesting. Well, we've gone on a while. There's a lot more we could say about these, Ugh. but I want to not keep them too long. Any last things you want to bring up about these episodes? Um, let's see. Gosh. All right, I'll say this. Um. I always love to drop a little tidbit about the voice acting. Mm-hmm. So, A, Freddie Prince Jr. as Kanan Jarrus. Again, like, I-, I can't praise this episode enough. And I think his performance in it was, like, just pitch perfect. So, mm-hmm. kudos to him. Yep. And then the other thing I discovered is that Rook is uh, portrayed by Warwick Davis. Who we oh, know that's of awesome. as uh, played Wicket in Return of the mm-hmm. Jedi, and like you may be more familiar with him as Willow, right? Mm-hmm. In the other Lucas property, both the original and the newer series that came yeah. out. And and he yeah. like appears all over the place in Star Wars movies and like little bit roles yeah. and cameos and stuff. And it's funny too because again, I don't mean to keep pushing these these episodes, though I think. Daniel and I had a ton of fun with them. We talked a lot about his character because his character is a central part of those Thrawn, the second of the Thrawn novels. And like, if you've read *Heir to the Empire* series, the Rook that appears in that is very different than this. And I've never really loved the character in *Rebels*, and in those books, we get much closer to the original character. That I, it was just to me. To me, it was one, like clearly Timothy Zahn and Disney have a working relationship because they're paying him. But I know he was very bitter for a while about, you know, when he wasn't brought in. And and I feel like in those novels, part of what he's doing is trying to be like, yeah, there's some stuff that Rebels got right and some stuff it kind of got wrong. And I'm going to kind of fix the fix this a little bit. Yeah. I mean, if you had that platform, wouldn't 
wouldn't you use it to not like get a dig in but kind of reclaim what you feel is like your yeah. baby and i mean i i'm guessing that ek johnson felt like she would like to do that after watching tales of the jedi which yeah. if you uh uh hear our discussion from last week about um uh from two weeks ago, however many weeks ago it was about uh the ahsoka book you feel the same so yeah i get that anyway lots more to talk about uh lots more to dig into um for our members, we will have a little bit of a bonus section. Uh, this is going to actually kind of kick off what I think we're going to do with a lot of bonus sections. There's a great set of novels that have been coming out or collections of short stories called From a Certain Point of View. Uh, Riki and I are going to talk a little bit about the general idea of it in this member section. And then what we're going to try and do, and we might mix it up sometimes, but in a lot of the upcoming member sections, what we'll do, is, since it, it's a bunch of very short stories, we'll try and do like one short story in a member section. So that's going to kind of be a new new direction the member sections go for a little while. Of course, you can become a member for just $5 a month uh, or I think $55 a year as, as a discount if you get it on an annual basis. You get ad-free content. You get um, the bonus content. 25% of all the money we raise goes to help the strike funds right now during the strikes. And, of course, you're just really helping to support these podcasts. Uh, it's just for a few bucks a month. You can help help support what we do, help keep the lights on. It's a lot of work that goes into these. I love doing it, but it's a lot of work, and, it, and it's, it's a good deal of money. So if you can become a member, it's a huge, huge help. Uh, and if not, of course, please let us know what you think. Uh, would love to know your thoughts. We are going to be going up on these last episodes, so feel free to send in your feedback or questions you have that you want us to read as we go over the last episodes of uh, uh, Star Wars um, Rebels Season 4. Uh, and hope to see you in the member section, and if we don't, we have spoken. Spoken.